Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 64, Matching System and Story. Recorded Monday, June 22nd of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. And we're back from Fear of the Con. We are, and our voices have even recovered. Hooray! Woo! Normal speech! It's nice. So, for those of you who missed it, our previous episode was our Fear of the Con 8 recap. I'm not going to spend a whole ton of time talking about what we did at Fear of the Con, because we've already done that. Yeah, we spent a whole episode on it. The last one, specifically, so go listen to that. Yeah, that was bonus episode number six. Go listen to that to hear what an awesome time we had, because we had an awesome time. What other news do we have? Well, um, this isn't the newest news, but you've apparently had some major changes to your real-life gaming group. Oh, yeah, this is true. And actually, this is relevant to our episode topic tonight. We've had some interesting changes. I've talked throughout this podcast about the Birthright game that I'm in. That has finally come to a conclusion. Not really a uh, an actual end, but we've shelved it. And it's probably not coming off the shelf, but you never know. How long did this thing run for? About 10 years. That is a long campaign. Well, it wasn't the most regular of campaigns because it drew in people from all over the state. It was, hey, let's get together like once a quarter and do it. Sure, but still, that's a long time to keep anything like that going. Yeah, no, it was definitely a, a good game, and I've, I certainly learned a lot from it. But that was kind of the linchpin of our group of friends as you know, kind of an excuse to get together. So now that it's done, because we all determined we were not actually having fun with it, we're going to try and actually do other things, which is exciting. We're starting up another strategic level game that'll probably run online, kind of science fantasy-ish, kind of uh, space Numenera opera. esque or something, or? Eh, Star Wars, okay. Twilight Imperium kind of storyline, uh, okay, Masters gotcha. of Orion, that kind of stuff. So more more in space than um, weird sciency remnants oh, of one hundred percent in space. You know, where you each have a couple of planets we control and our own little empire and that sort of thing. But it's mostly diplomatic, so that'll be fun and it'll Neat. be a little more competitive. So that'll be kind of cool. Uh, but we're looking at a whole bunch of other games as well as actually getting together for non gaming purposes, which will be nice. Yeah, that's always a good thing to do. I think if if Fear the Con taught me anything, it's gaming with friends is wonderful. Getting together with friends, no matter what the reason, also wonderful. So, yeah. Exactly. So, the upshot of this is that I will have a whole bunch of new games to talk about, hopefully, because what we want to do is run a whole bunch of one-shots as well. Cool. Yeah. All right. uh, Let's get into our actual topic here. Sure thing. Do it. I'll start with Proverbs for once. Okay. So, this is Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. And this is James 3.17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So our topic tonight is matching system and story. And this is something that I think we ran into at Fear the Con. A little bit. And it's talking about getting the right system to make your story effective. 
So the first thing we have to talk about is why you need to worry about the system at all, right? <laughs> why does it matter? Well, <laughs> to a certain extent, it doesn't. If you have a motivated enough gaming group and a good enough group of players in GM, you can tell an amazing story-centric game using the Palladium system. But you're not always going to have ideal circumstances all around. And mm -hmm. frankly, if you've got a system that complements the type of story that you're trying to tell, even the most skilled GM is going to get better and even the more you know motivated gaming groups are going to get more engaged because the system is is doing what it needs to do to kind of complement the story you're trying to tell, it simultaneously will get out of your way and enhance what you're doing at its best. Yeah, it's working for you rather than against you. Yeah. I ran into this at Fear the Con. I was playing in a D&D &D module game, which was fine, but it was an investigative module. And the whole time I was thinking, boy, I really wish that this 5th edition game broke out the battle maps and stopped investigating because this is not a system really well suited to investigation. I mean, it did it, and the GM yeah. was good enough to make the investigation engaging, but there was a lot of, all right, uh, what's the best skill? I guess it's this. Can I do this? Does this work? Instead of just knowing, hey, yeah, this is how things go, let's roll with it and just make it happen, boom, done. Sounds almost like you were trying to play a gumshoe game with the D&D &D rules. It, that's kind of what it was. And Okay, yes, it's fantasy, and there were some fights at the end, and we got into actual D&D. &D. <laughs> yeah, cool. But it was not the right system for that sort of story, in my opinion. Now, as part of a sequence of modules, I'm sure it was a welcome break. Because if sure. you're going through the whole encounters system where you're having, you know, the fight of the week or month or whatever it is, then a much less combat intensive session where you're doing a bunch of investigation probably is awesome. But as a sit down, hey, let's do a D&D &D game con thing, it was like, eh, you know, I really wanted to play D&D &D and I'm not sure I am. It was kind of a struggle because I, I didn't feel the system matched the story that the GM and the authors of that module were really trying to tell. Well, and by the same token, Chad's Because Reasons game in slot three, he kind of created a system around the type of story he wanted to tell. Right. He had over a dozen players. I think there were 16 of us up there. Mm -hmm. And so he needed something that was fast and got out of the way that put major emphasis on important decisions but didn't slow things down overly much, relied on the number of players that we had as an asset rather than a liability. Right, because it was 16 players and it was crazy. Yeah, you don't have time to consult tables with 16 players. You just <laughs> no. take a vote on how something goes. And he did that by dividing us up into two equally matched teams. And yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on there. But it was designed specifically for the kind of game that he wanted to play. Right. Actually, I think probably the best example from what I've heard, I've still yet to play this game, of a, a game where the system complements the type of story you're trying to tell with it is Dread. Yeah, I would agree with that. You've got a system that is built around building up physical tension, which translates into suspense and emotional tension, which is what you want out of a horror game. So it works very well for that. Now, of course, we're talking about themed systems here, you know, what systems play to certain strengths. There are plenty of generic systems, obviously, and those work well, but I think even then, unless you really pay a lot of attention and put the work in 
to emphasize the things that you want to get out of the story, you're going to kind of run into a problem where the system is good enough in all respects, but doesn't specifically emphasize the themes or motifs or the, the important elements of your story, as opposed to everything else that happens. A good example of this, again, from Fear of the Con, was the Slot 1 game I was in, which was this very lightweight, fun, ridiculous game that was run in the Rysis system. Now, Rysis is a very lightweight system. You have four stats and a weakness. That's all it is. One stat is plus four, one's plus three, one's plus two, one's plus one. Where I think four dice, three dice, two dice, one dice, actually. But same thing, right? Real simple. It's a seven-page booklet of a game. But... Because it is so generic, you have to put a lot of work in to emphasize what the themes are in that game. And the GM of that game, Zach Lorton, who's a listener of the show, actually, he had to do a lot of work on those pre-gen characters to make sure they emphasized what he wanted out of the game. Compare that to Call of Cthulhu, which was the Slot 5 game I played. There were a lot of things in that game that wouldn't have worked, you know, in terms of system. There were a lot of things that wouldn't have worked in many other games. Well, it's designed to recreate the works of H.P. Lovecraft, which is basically about people being driven insane and killed by otherworldly things. Right, and struggling, and you know, people who are good in a few things and struggle at a lot else. So it's, you know, if you don't have points in a skill, you're unlikely to succeed in that skill. It can get, I wouldn't say crunchy, but it's pretty detailed in its skills list, so a lot of times it's, no, you know, I'm not good at that, I'm good at this other thing. That creates a level of teamwork because you have to depend on other people. And when you start losing those people because injury, madness, etc. take their toll, then it becomes harder and harder to get things done, which is what you want out of a Lovecraft game. Right. Now, there's a lot of considerations that go into picking the right system for your game. There's a certain art to it, I think, especially if you're not running a system that kind of comes pre-built with its own setting and stories like Shadowrun. Or even D&D, for that D&D, matter. D&D, I mean, there are any number of these. L5R is another yeah, good Legend example. Yeah, Legend of the Five Rings. And, of course, it's very common to extract a system you like and try and do something else with it. And then you have to wonder, okay, am I really doing the right system for this? Are there any other options? Maybe there aren't. This strategic game we're trying to run as a sci-fi, space opera-y sort of game, it's really hard to find systems that support that at a strategic level. Plenty at a character level. Lots and lots of those. Yeah, it almost sounds like you're playing Race for the Galaxy in role-playing game form. Yeah, kinda. Lots of diplomacy, some space combat, a lot of building up of infrastructure, that sort of thing. There's very little that supports that out there. Uh, We're kind of right now looking at a modified version of the Birthright system, which is going to be kind of crazy to try and do. Or a modified version of the rain system, which has rules for that. But both of those are specifically designed for low magic fantasy. So it'll be a bit of a headache. Well, and that's something kind of strange. Or, well, strange is not the... Let me back up. That that brings up kind of an interesting point in that there are a certain number of things out there that you're probably going to want to run that there is no system for. Yeah. I, you guys stumbled across one, um, science fiction empire building. I would expect there to be something for that out there, but apparently that's an empty space. Yeah, Traveler apparently has a little bit, but then you have to play Traveler for any of that to work. Right. And the same goes for 
like there's a tiny little bit in Stars Without Number, which is, it's kind of the old school revival kind of game, but for sci-fi. So it's designed to feel like Traveler without being Traveler in much the same way that the other OSR games are designed to feel like first edition without being it? Yeah, there were some TSR-ish kind of games that were set in sci-fi environments, and that's kind of what it's designed for. Not necessarily bad, not what we were going for. And those were the only sci-fi options we could find. The only other thing that I can think of is Microscope, but that would be really... That's so narrative-focused, and that would be over way oh, too fast. Yeah, I mean, that's not a game. That's telling you, hey, this is yeah, what happens. Yeah, that's collaborative setting design exactly. as a game, basically. Yeah. And, you know, this gets into the system having specific mechanics to reflect what we want, because we're looking for those empire management, domain management rules. Like, there are plenty of other systems that would work really well at a character level. Everything from Star Wars Edge of the Empire to... GURPS, Hero, Savage Worlds, any other, you know... Any of these. But they don't have rules for what we want, so it was difficult to find that. And I think that's very common because usually when somebody designs a system, it's because they want that system to emphasize certain specific things. Right. Your standard fantasy game, you know, swords and sorcery kind of stuff, often they're emphasizing combat and the magic system. Cyberpunk is all about computer systems and body modification and manipulating security and hacking and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and let's be honest, firefights, preferably with automatic weapons. If you're looking for a a psychological horror game, Call of Cthulhu, Unknown Armies, etc., you need a madness system. Yes, you can act it out, but if it's not supported mechanically, it's sort of a, uh, no, I'm perfectly fine with this. Come on, really? And it's more fun because you want to have your character change in a mechanical way and then roleplay that. We talked about Dread already, and then Exalted is all about doing crazy fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's got specific stunt mechanics, which can backfire too, but uh, at least they're trying for that. Sure, and there are other games like that, Feng Shui, Hong Kong Action Theater, so on and so forth. So... We've kind of covered everything that we had under our inherent theme. Should we uh, should we start looking at some of the other considerations we had down here? Because even for us, this is a detailed outline we're working from. Yeah, it is. There's a counterpoint to that inherent theme, and that's inherent tone. If there's a system designed to present a particular tone, using it for another game where the tone is completely different, even if the mechanics line up, may cause you problems. I would not want to run a Warhammer 40k game using Rysis or uh, Quags or Toon, right? Because, yeah, okay, I can tell, again, I can tell any story in any system, but the mechanics don't represent what's important, and they don't represent the tone of the game where failure is common and there are lasting consequences. Tune does not have lasting consequences, specifically, right? You're right. out for like two minutes, and then you're back in the game. Perfectly well, normal. Well, and I mean, to use a really extreme example, just imagine trying to run a humorous game with, you know, even hacked or modified versions of the Dread or Call of Cthulhu rules. It would be a, you'd be swimming up a waterfall. Exactly. It's very difficult. Uh, likewise, if you've got a very realistic setting a walking dead kind of thing where how many granola bars you were able to scavenge really matter. Or heck, even 1980s Cold War espionage. Sure, anything like that. Those don't mesh well with 
super simple cinematic games. Like, I would not want to run The Walking Dead in Rysis because it's got four stats and a weakness and you're done. It's incredibly simple. Right. You you don't have any way of simulating, like, lasting injuries, like being crippled or losing a hand or losing an eye or exactly. any of that sort of thing. And those sorts of things are important in a survival horror kind of game. So Sure. That's the tone of the game, is these things right. are critical and you want to track them. That brings us to granularity. What do you want to spend your time at the table tracking and representing mechanically? Usually this is reflected in character creation, as well as the rules for playing that character. I mean... Yeah, and there's a... A whole continuum here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can start at the real simple end, Fate, Quags, Dread, which doesn't have stats, just, you know, some questions that you answer about your character, all the way up through Point Buy and, you know, right. the, the 170-odd list of skills in Cinnabar or something like that, you know, where it's <laughs> that's, incredibly And that's crunchy. tiny compared to Gerps or Hero. Well, I mean, the, yeah. the skill chapter in the GURPS 4th edition uh, basic set is what, probably about 30 pages thick, roughly? I wouldn't know, but I'd believe it. Now, granted, GURPS is a generic system. There is no campaign out there that I can possibly imagine that is going to use every single one of those skills, because some will be kind of excluded from a world that includes the others. Like, yeah. you're you're not going to have a campaign that has, like, primitive survival skills, you know, like um, being able to start a fire with flint and steel in the same game as you do advanced AI hacking or something like that. Those are, I mean, I suppose you could contrive something where those would wind up in the same setting, but it's highly unlikely that any character is going to have both of those. Yeah, but even then... There's still a laundry list of skills in those sorts of games because that sort of precision is important. You need to pick exactly what you want to represent. And that's what GURPS does. A lot of people think, oh, it's the kitchen sink system and you have to know all of it to play it. And that's not true. GURPS is pick what's important to your game and use just that. Yeah, it's actually a modular system. It's designed to to kind of be fit together like campaign Legos. Exactly. And then kind of in the middle, you've got your D&D &D Pathfinder, the, the, the class features. and Yeah, and then life paths, which are like burning in between classes and point by. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's all these different ways to do it. I'm sure we could break out every single game onto different points on a spectrum, but... Not sure, if we want to be at this for five and a half hours. Yeah, my head already <laughs> hurts. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, talking about what the system covers... Different systems will cover different kinds of situations very well. D&D, &D, like I talked about initially, it does combat really well. It does not do social conflict especially well, and never has, because it's not designed for that. On the other hand, Burning Wheel does social conflict pretty well. Exactly. Because it's got systems designed for it. Right. It may not have other strengths, but it does that especially well. Chase rules, Savage Worlds has really good detailed chase rules because chases are wonderfully cinematic and pulpy, and that's what it's designed to do. Its magic rules are kind of mediocre in a lot of ways. You know, they're very generic, but the chases are really cool. Um, some systems, like Traveler, have very detailed rules for travel. <laughs> Shocking with that in the name there. Yeah, I know. But, you know, how long do you spend in, you know, in space? 
we've talked about Gumshoe, right? Other investigation games. Trail of Cthulhu and uh, Knights of Black Agents and everything else based on Gumshoe. Uh, a whole bunch of other games are specifically built around investigation, finding things out. That's what they try and model. They don't necessarily do other things well, but they do that especially well. Well, then you'll find systems that have detailed rules for various other things. Um, one kind of interesting example is superhero RPGs, because not every superpower is going to be something that you use in combat. Now, most of them are, because that's the way that comics have been written for ages. But, yeah. you know, some every once in a while you'll get some hero or villain that's just got some weird out-of-left-field power, and you need kind of a good system to simulate that. Exactly. Another interesting thing that comes into choosing the right system for your story is pacing. How much time do you want to spend doing certain things? Right, because, I mean, there are some systems where combat is really fast. You roll a couple of dice and the fight is over. Yep. Or, in the D&D example, a six-round combat can take all night. Because right. you've got all these different characters and, you know, NPCs slash monsters are included in this with all these different options. And it's modeled out in this exacting, painstaking detail, which can be a lot of fun. I mean, a good mm -hmm. tactical combat in D&D can really be thrilling in its own way. But if you're looking for a game where, you know, the fight is over in just a couple of seconds and you're on to the the chase or back to the investigation or something like that, you don't want to use D&D like you ran into specifically at Fear the Con. Let's dig a little deeper on that because we're talking about D&D and, you know, how you spend all night on that. In many cases, that's what you want to spend all night doing when you're playing D&D because that's the draw. Whereas if I'm playing Call of Cthulhu, for example, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in combat. No. If for no, no other reason than just about everything you're likely to f fight no, no, is going to... Forget how lethal it is. I don't care about combat in Call of Cthulhu, except maybe at the very end when I struggle futilely against whatever horrible otherworldly monster this is, or we go crazy and we're, you know, all the players are trying to kill each other. That's fine when that happens, and then, you know, having it done quickly is fun because it's a little shocking, but I don't care. I'm really much more interested in crawling around, finding out crazy things about the world and, you know, going, wait, was that a ghost? What is that weird shadow? Let me search the room for weird clues and symbols and everything else that happens in a Call of Cthulhu game. Right, because it's fundamentally about learning disturbing things about the universe rather than just fighting monsters. Right. You know, talking to victims and finding bodies and trying to puzzle out what exactly that thing did to its head. That's what I want to spend time doing. I don't care about combat except as the climax. Whereas in a D&D game, that's what I want to do all the time. Yeah, even if you're fighting a big nasty tentacle monster, it's probably a beholder or something and you're going to take it down with your swords. Exactly. I was listening to Gameable Disney, I think, uh, their Big Hero 6 episode. They were talking about, again, the, the same topic, what you spend time on. You know, they brought up the example of Ars Magica. Designing spells in your average D20 fantasy game is boring and tedious. It's awful. If you even get to do it at all. I mean, a right. lot of the time you have to just pick from what the designers put down. Right, which is 
pacing, right? What do you want to spend right. time doing? Well, who cares? Just grab the spell and let's go. Oh, you you want an ice fireball instead of a fire fireball? Cool. Swap out the descriptor. Pay your gold and we're done. Whereas in Ars Magic, where you're building up these complicated effects and designing your own spells, that's the point of the game. And you're playing mages who do that sort of thing. And that's what you want to be doing. So the game is designed to let you spend a lot of time doing that. There's very little dungeon crawling rules in Ars Magica, you know? Right, because it's not about looting ancient tombs for treasure. Yeah, it's not about that. So there's a certain element of, let's get the stuff that isn't important out of the way, and let's focus on the stuff that is important to the story that we are telling, and that are important to the genre that we're playing in. That's also often reflected on what's kept track of on a character sheet. If you're playing Fate, for example, there's just a little box for extras, you know, stuff that you might happen to have that kind of matter but aren't reflected in your aspects. That is stuff that is just jotted down if it's absolutely necessary. Everything else is all about aspects. You know, so what you're keeping track of matters. If encumbrance, you know, we talked about uh, granola bars, <laughs> right, for the, the Walking Dead game. If you're keeping track of that kind of stuff, make sure it's the kind of game where that's important. This is why everybody throws out encumbrance rules. Because most of the time, people are trying to play something that's a lot more cinematic and a lot less grindy and simulationist. Yeah, or it's not the kind of story where you're likely to need to know how many bottles of water you actually have and how much it weighs and how far you can carry it. One of the best examples is um, arrows, normal arrows in D&D. Yeah, like, who cares? If you're playing an archer and you're just doing a dungeon crawl and it's not like a survival horror kind of a thing... Who cares? The yeah. archer never runs out of arrows. They exactly. always have arrows. It's a movie revolver, okay? <laughs> yeah. Who, who cares how many bullets he actually fires? The, the important thing is that he's firing bullets, or arrows in this case. Now, if you're playing Dark Sun and you need to cross the desert, well, the whole point of that story is that the desert is very dangerous and very difficult to get through. And there's no resources. and You're tracking water in that game. You're probably tracking arrows too. In fact, yeah, you're, you're probably retrieving arrows from things you shoot. So Because the whole point is that everything is miserable and awful because yeah. Dark Sun. I mean, Dark is right there in the name of the game. <laughs> yes, and talking about infamously difficult and deadly games, deadliness of combat. Pretty much everything about combat because in most games it's going to come up. Uh, yeah. One of the other things to think about in addition to the deadliness is the scalability of it. Do you need sure. mass combat rules? Like, it sounds like in this uh, this game that you and your gaming group are starting, that's a very realistic possibility. You could have massed armies going at it or space fleets or any another number of other mass combat situations. Yeah, it's something that we know is going to come up because we know there are external threats we're going to have to fight off. And the question is, how do we model that appropriately in the game? But also, if this is a game where we are playing leaders of various factions, can player characters die? Is it the kind of story where those characters die? Is this Game of Thrones or Babylon 5? Yeah. They talk about this a lot on System Mastery, where, you know, there was, there was this period in the, the 90s, really, where every game was trying to be grim and gritty and brutal and deadly. And well, it's and very just, simulationist, which yeah, often, and they, those two often go hand in hand. Yeah. There was a heavy influence of a lot of the 90s grimdark trend in comic books during that time. Yeah. Which is funny because compared to the present day, the 90s was kind of an idyllic time, but the media was really grim. And uh, there was a, a lot of stuff published during that 
era where it was like, well, of course your character can die. And it's like, well, okay, maybe that's not what we're going for here. I mean, in a lot of really kind of heroic games or ones where you're trying to get really deeply invested in the character that you're playing, like, I don't know, even a White Wolf game. I mean, those games are supposedly, anyways, all about the player characters. Yeah. If the the whole purpose of the game is to take this detailed, fully realized character and take them through a story arc and watch them grow and change and stuff, if this guy catches a stray round in the middle of a mass combat situation and is just gone, that's not what you want, most likely. There's a reason that it's really hard to kill most characters in White Wolf games. Honestly, you could have done without any rules for killing them off. Yeah, you probably could have. But it was the 90s, and you had to have those. But they made it really hard for those characters to die, because the important thing is those characters and the relationships between them and the stories that are they're about, not what's the odds of them getting hit by a car walking down the street and dying, or, oh, you're up against something that's a little overpowering? Yeah, your, your character's dead. Should have thought through better. And that kind of feeds into our next consideration, which is narrative versus mechanical focus. Right. And we might call that narrative versus simulation as there's this whole GNS theory yeah, out there that I, I'm not familiar with, but is a thing. I'm familiar with it enough to know that it's kind of like your Myers-Briggs type. It's somewhat descriptive and it can be a little bit useful, but it is not the be all and end all of, you know, who somebody is as a role player. But in any case, you kind of... For generic systems in particular, you kind of have a continuum where at one end you have the really super narrative focused stuff. This is your your fate, your primetime adventures. Uh, it sounds like your drama system. And then at the other end, you have GURPS and Hero. And in the middle, you have things like Savage Worlds or some of the other kind of more fast and punchy kinds of systems. There is nothing wrong with either end of this continuum or the middle. But you have to know what you're doing. <laughs> and the other thing about it is that if it's very mechanically focused, often it is less important if individual characters survive, as long as the overall plot is carried out. Call of Cthulhu, for example, this game I was in, my character died in the last two minutes of the game. And it was fantastic. And part of the reason it was fantastic is that it did not really matter if my character died, you know, especially at the end of the game, so long as somebody in the group survived and did the thing we were trying to do. It was, did we succeed as a group, whatever the cost, or did we fail and unleash something horrible? Right, and then there's kind of another concern that's in there. How much narrative control do you give the players? And specifically control over the narrative as opposed to character actions that you build a narrative from. Right, because if I succeed in GURPS, you know, I'm going to roll under my skill, the GM's going to look at that and tell me what happens. If I succeed in FATE, the GM's going to look at me and say, what happens? Often, um, things that are not particularly mechanical will specifically give you control over the meta story to some degree. That's awesome. Just be aware if you're picking a game where you don't want players to have that or where the focus maybe is on the narrative you know, and making sure that you've hit all these narrative tropes, almost regardless of what your characters do, you yeah. pick the right system for that. Well, like, okay, a really good example is Josh Jordan's game, whose name escapes me at the moment. Doll, uh, heroin. Heroin, thank you. His game, Heroin, which is really all about doing one specific story, the 
young girl lost in a magical other world kind of story. Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, Narnia, etc. The game is specifically designed to create that narrative and let people play around with that narrative, not, okay, here are a bunch of things that your characters can do, let's try and stay on that narrative path by using those skills from the character's perspective. <laughs> because that often leads to, well, why would my character go into the wardrobe? <laughs> the answer that we often give is, because that's where the story is, and that tells me there's a mismatch between the system and the story that we're trying to tell or what we're doing at the table. Or just a lack of player buy-in, which can happen. Well, yeah, but it's a lack of player buy-in to the narrative. Right. Right. And they have a system that gives them an excuse because it's not trying to give players control over the narrative. To back up just a little bit, the difference between giving players narrative control and not is not kind of a, you know, well, real role players do it this way or that way. If you are doing a very pulpy, adventure kind of game where things are going to be kind of fluid throughout, some narrative control can be a lot of fun. If, on the other hand, you are trying to solve a, an actual mystery, I believe they touched on this in the last Gameable Disney as well, and there is actually an answer in the GM's mind at the beginning of the campaign as to what is really going on, giving the players too much narrative control with their characters can completely take that entire campaign and just throw it out the window. Yeah. You know, you're going to lose all of your prepared material because even if you're playing with your identical twin, they're not going to come up with the same stuff you did. Yeah, if your players can bend a fate point and invent a clue, maybe you're not using the right system for the kind of mystery you're trying to tell. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to say that there are a few other considerations as well. And these are not specific to the game as it plays, but more about the game that you're trying to pick for your story as a product, as much as anything else. The first thing is really how much stuff is available for your game. How many supplements are there? How many splat books? How much of a player community is there? And once again, there is no right answer here. I mean, some people can find the single contained book that has everything for the system and has never been added to to be really liberating because then they can absorb the whole thing and they just have to keep that in their head. Right. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's people that love splat books. I'm one of them. I have an entire bookcase full of them over here. Yeah, and splat books are awesome. Often they're good for the GM as much as the players. Hey, here's some cool material I can use. And there's plenty of unofficial material. Uh, you know me, I'm a huge Unknown Armies fan. Yep. John Scott Tynes, one of the authors of Unknown Armies, I think the primary author on it, ran a website for a very long time that I think may still be up. That is a massive archive of player-created elements of Unknown Armies campaigns. Uh, hooks, weird stories, different magical powers and adept paths and crazy artifacts and that sort of thing. Okay, you are making me want to play Unknown Armies, which is something that we both want to do and we need to get on at some point. Yeah, well, I listen, Fear the Con, I was trying to hook Derek White on it, too. I hope you succeeded. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's real good. Because <laughs> I was helping you. Yep. I think I may have hit that thing, though, where I know 3rd edition is coming out. Yeah. Like, sometime in 2016. And it's just like, but but it'll be out by the time I actually get the game started. Do I really want to try? And, you know, it's kind of that problem. But yes, we need to try it. Anyway, monetary outlay is kind of a big thing. And that relates to how much unofficial material is out there, to a degree. It's become very common lately to have core rule sets 
online for free, and that makes it easy to get into the game. This really kind of started with the SRD, but nowadays, 5th edition, the basic rule set is available for free. You can just grab that and start playing D&D, which is awesome. And that's even true for non-dungeon crawly type games. I, oh, yeah. The Trouble with Rose, Todd Zerker's little game that we've referenced about a thousand times on our podcast, that's mm-hmm. available free online from his website. Yep. It's a great game to use because it is, in fact, free. Rhesus, free. Tristat, DX, free. Uh, there's hundreds of these. The, the Fate Core rules are pay what you want online, and they're awesome. I bought the Fate Core rules at Fear the Con 8 mostly because I wanted a nice bound copy to sit alongside my Diaspora and Spirit of the Century rules that are also Fate that I've never played, but there you go. And those are good games, and it's a really easy way to get into it. Other systems can get ridiculously expensive. How much have you spent on GURPS books? Uh, (laughs) I have over a hundred of them. Let me put it to you that way. More than we should really admit. Yeah, more than we should admit or think about. Now, granted, I am very good at locating bargains. I have spent less than $5 on a lot of these. Right. And this represents over 20 years of collecting GURPS books, but it's a lot of money. Yeah. Imagine trying to collect all the D&D 3.5 splat books as they came I out. I did that with an employee discount even, and I spent way too much money on that too. Yeah. I didn't get all of them, but I sure got a lot. Yeah, it's easy to do. And there was a... Some of this is, again, changing business models. Fifth edition, for example, they're not doing splat books. Really. They're doing two books a year. And those are setting books and theme books, not, hey, here's a bunch of rules. That's great. But those are still really nice books that you can drop a lot of money on. Yeah, and they are beautiful. I mean, it's no Warhammer, but you're still spending a bunch of money to kind of keep up, as it were. Yeah. There are other supplies that you need sometimes. Uh, Obviously, almost all games need funky polyhedral dice. That's not a huge deal, but it is a thing if you're just getting started. Yeah, Fate has its own special dice that it uses, although we're going to link this in the show notes, hopefully. Yeah. There's a diagram available online that shows you how to take those plain white D6s that you can get at gas stations and stuff and a black Sharpie and turn those into Fate dice. Yeah. It's real easy. Yes, I saw that. It was awesome. But, you know, sometimes you may need stuff like that. Minis, actually, are probably the biggest one of these. I mean, if you really feel like you need minis, those can get expensive pretty Although, quickly. Although, even those these years are getting less expensive than they used to. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. But there's a lot of good paper ones out there, though. And there's that flat plastic minis Kickstarter mm-hmm. project that's nearing its end. And Oh, sure. There are ways around it. But if you really want the minis experience, as it were, you're spending a bunch of money on paint. If nothing you else. You certainly are, yes. Uh, and a lot of time, frankly. <laughs> and possibly your eyesight. Oh, true. Aside from that, there's also a question of buy-in when you start a game, because sometimes systems are difficult to learn. Yeah. How much do you have to hold in your head at once can matter a lot in whether somebody feels comfortable playing a game and whether it's right for your story. This is something that's actually really nice about particularly the last couple editions of D&D, For the most part, whenever you're doing anything in one of those games, you're going to take a d20, you're going to roll it, you're going to add the number on it to something, and you're going to know from that whether or not you succeeded or failed. Right. And this is why everybody hates grapple rules in every game. Yes. Because grappling always has its own unique set of rules that nobody learned because they're not the core rules. It's a whole set of rules you have to learn in addition to the primary rules that you're using all the time. Something about grappling 
just turns off the make this fit with everything else switch in people's brains. I don't know what it is. Too many wrestling fans writing books or something? I don't yeah, know, but, but it, I've then, noticed that phenomenon too. You know, core mechanics can be difficult. I really struggle with the Cortex system, especially the one in Marvel Heroic Roleplaying. I think they've refined it somewhat with like Firefly and a few others. It's a fantastic system, and if you have a GM who really knows it, you can have a great time with it. But when I was trying to learn to run the, that game, I couldn't hold it in my head. And I said, you know what? I don't think I want to play this game. It's not fast enough and fun enough for what I want to do. Yeah, I think probably the best example of a system that really got out of the way for us, well, was the Savage Worlds and the Savage Run game. Yeah. I could not believe how fast that system resolved stuff. Right. So, and some of that is pacing, and some of it is you didn't have to know a whole lot. It was... No. Oh, what's my rank? Oh, this number on my sheet is the die I roll. Yeah. Cool. If you hit the highest level on that die, it explodes. Uh, you just keep a running total, and it's it's very right. it's very easy to grasp. You can teach somebody to play Savage Worlds in, what, about 20 minutes or so? Uh, less than that, probably. If I have a character sheet for them, yeah, it's real yeah, simple. Yeah, that's true. If they don't have to create the character, then you're looking at probably more like five. Yeah, compare that to, like, Hackmaster, where it's... Okay, go look Oof. up this chart, look up this chart, look up this chart. There's not a whole lot necessarily you have to hold in your head, but you're spending a bunch of time on charts. Right. That really affects pacing and the feel of certain games. You could run a soap opera-y kind of drama game in something like that, but it would struggle a lot because you're constantly getting distracted from the drama of the story by happy fun chart time. Right. And I mean, some people really like their charts. Uh, I'm not really one of them in most yeah. cases, but I know that there's an audience for that out there. I know. And every group has their preferences, and this is kind of the last thing we want to hit. Sometimes people will just like a system and not want to try other things. It happens. D&D &D is the most common culprit here. It's the most common, I think, just by virtue of familiarity. Sure, but I mean, people will lock themselves into a particular edition of D&D &D and not want to move. Well, that's true, but people lock themselves into their own editions of GURPS, Rifts. Hero System is another one that tends to trap player groups. Yeah, I know plenty of folks who started with Fate and are like, well, why would I want to play anything else? Well, okay. Because there are other things to try <laughs> that do things a little differently, and maybe those are good. There's new art out there to try, etc., but, you know. They feel comfortable with it. They don't see a reason to try anything else. I have to admit, this is an, an attitude that I just plain don't understand. I mean, if I were to get a try and list off every system that I haven't played yet and would like to try, we would be here for half an hour. Yeah, well, the answer is all the ones that I haven't talked about on the podcast, like every single one, I want to try them. And I listen, yeah. I get it, but that's because you and I are people who like trying new art in terms of, hey, here are new systems and new kinds of stories. We like that sort of exploration. There are plenty of people who have a comfort zone they don't want to get out of. Well, and we are so into RPGs that we do a podcast about it, so we're not the best sample for this, I, and I admit the it. The idea of, oh, I'm going to try this system that is designed differently is really enticing, whereas for other people, the power fantasy of a particular game is what draws them to it, and they don't want to get out of that because... Well, why wouldn't I want to play my 25th level wizard? Well, because maybe it would be fun to play something else instead right, but, for even one night. I mean... But they're not they're not there yet. Yeah. And that's that's okay. 
sometimes, you know, there are ways around this. Oh, let's convert it to a new edition. Let's, you know, uh, we're missing like three people tonight. Why don't we try something else? You can always do that sort of thing. We actually did that in our Friday night group where we had a player who was only able to show up intermittently for a while. So we, you cracked out inspectors and we had a lot of fun with those characters. Mm -hmm. I would actually kind of like to go back to that game someday. Oh, me too. It's the perfect time if you've got a group where you've got some kind of known or expected scheduling conflicts coming up for somebody that's a core part of the group and you don't want to just carry on the story without them. That's a good time to crack out the new stuff. And I think right. a lot of gaming groups that don't want to switch systems miss out a little bit because there's always opportunities. But sorry, that's that's a rant for another episode, I guess. That's fair. And I think that's about everything. I think the last thing I want to wrap up on is simply that this is something that you need to put some thought into when you're starting a game. I think it's easy to say I'm going to, and I think this is common among new GMs, it's, oh, it's my turn to GM, or I'm going to try and GM. I've got this cool story, but I'm going to use the same system we've been playing. And some of this is familiarity. Some of it is uh, not wanting to rock the boat too much. But often, if you've got this cool story that's you know very different from what we've been doing in this game, maybe it's time to pick a different system. You might get more out of that than trying to do the same thing, even in a system that you're already kind of familiar with, because the system will complement the story you're trying to tell. Well, and the other thing that I would like to add in, because I ran into this with our current Friday night game, is the perfect system for what you're doing might not exist. You may have to hack some stuff together from existing systems or mm -hmm. adapt as best you can. I mean, if it weren't for your artificial intelligence character, who I really want to keep in the story, I would probably not be using GURPS. But it's the only way where I can have all of the stuff that kind of needs to be in there for the story to work to mm -hmm. all be in the same setting and be sufficiently differentiated where it's not just, oh, that thing has a two in total combat value instead of a one. It, where it's not just a little storytelling skin over identical frameworks. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, so do we have anything else on this? Uh, I don't think we do. Um, I, I guess I would say don't be afraid to, to tinker, and especially don't be afraid to ask other veteran gamers for their input. Okay. I don't have a whole lot else to add either. Uh, I do want to very quickly remind folks, uh, especially any new listeners, if you like what you hear on Saving the Game, please go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us a lot. We've only got seven reviews on iTunes internationally. And while they are all, they all are five-star reviews, which is fantastic, I would love to get some more reviews out there. Honest reviews. They don't have to be five stars. If you listen to us and you're like, no, nah, this is really only a two-star show. Well, first, thanks for putting up with us. And second, I'd rather have your honest opinion because that gives us feedback that we can use to improve the show. Yeah. And every review helps push us up in the rankings and get the word out about saving the game and everything else about saving the game out to other people. And on that note, I think it's time we call it. What do you say? Yeah, I think we're good here. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. It was great meeting all of you at Fear the Con who came oh, out to that. so much fun. Oh, so good. Uh, I, I can't go through the list of people because I will forget folks, like we said on the bonus episode, but it was so good seeing all you. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for listening. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. Have a good one, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. 
Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.